Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. The following episode is part of our Coronavirus Impact series. For more interviews, videos, and news about the outbreak and its global consequences, visit us at ncuscr.org slash coronavirus. Thank you so much for joining me. My first question is, how does the Chinese government's response to the coronavirus compare with its response to SARS in 2002? So 2002, when, when SARS emerged, that was interesting because we didn't know it was happening at first, right? There were a lot of government cover-ups. When the government finally admitted to what was happening in response to a lot of international pressure and they let the WHO into China, they jumped into operational mode immediately. They mobilized all of their resources and they did what only China can do. There was a lot of self-quarantining in Beijing. They built a hospital in a week because it's China. They got a lot of people to dedicate themselves, a lot of healthcare workers to dedicate themselves to responding to the epidemic. Schools were closed. Transportation was closed. All of a sudden, people started riding their bikes again. And in about three or four weeks, I think the number of cases were dramatically reduced to almost nothing. And within a couple of months, SARS was over. And it was like, it was like a blip. There were impacts on other parts of the world, but not anything like what we're seeing today. So it was interesting when this started, we saw the government mobilize its resources a lot quicker. There was a lot more transparency. They sequenced the virus within a week and sent that sequencing out to the rest of the world. So there was sharing of information, there was transparency, and they mobilized their resources. But I think they don't know a lot about the virus, but this epidemic seems to just transmit in a much more wild fashion. If SARS came back, if it reemerged, I think we thought China would be prepared. After SARS, they modified their healthcare system, put into place really, really advanced surveillance system that goes all the way from the lowest municipal level in the township level, all the way up to the central level in Beijing. And I think maybe this was something that no country could be prepared for, right? It was an unknown virus. It broke out in a large city and it, it goes undetected for a while from what we know, and we still really don't know how the virus behaves, but it seems to be transmitted by people who are asymptomatic. So we probably don't even know how long the virus was out there in humans before it was detected by you know, Dr. Lee. But again, they mobilized everything and quarantined entire cities. 50 million people were quarantined. The response was, was similar. It was, it's been much more drastic this time. And again, they've gotten it under control. As far as we know, there are almost no new cases in most of China. There are a few cases in Wuhan and, and Hubei province. And they're continuing to be very, very vigilant. You can't go into Beijing right now from outside of Beijing without being quarantined for 14 days. So I think there's a lot more vigilance because they, they know that they need to be more vigilant. They had no idea what's going to happen now that they're letting people go back to wherever they were living if there'll be another outbreak. 
How has the global health system's response to infectious disease evolved since the SARS epidemic? So SARS was an, it was an interesting turning point in global health. After SARS happened, the WHO went to China. While it was happening, the WHO went to China and said, why didn't you report this to us? There's something called the international health regulations, which require countries to report outbreaks of infectious disease. And the Chinese government said, well, we didn't know it was. There was no name for it. It's something that had never been identified before. And it's not on the list of reportable diseases. The original international health regulations only required countries to report three diseases. And this was a totally novel disease. And so that did cause the global health community to go back and say, you know, sort of think to themselves, oh, we need to update the international health regulations. So in 2005, really in reaction to SARS, they updated the international health regulations um, so that, you know, reportable diseases include a much wider category of diseases and countries are required to report, but they're also required to develop surveillance systems and preventative systems and laboratory capability and human resource capability, right? So they can not only report, but be prepared to address an epidemic. Unfortunately, that's difficult. It requires an incredible amount of resources, and most countries don't have those resources. So, you know, I would say even though China improved its surveillance system after SARS and probably, you know, in response to the new international health regulations, there's a lot about the expectations in the international health regulations that is not developed in China. Um, you know, probably all kinds of human resource capabilities, monitoring systems, um, you know, preparedness includes things like actually going through, you know, scenario exercises and things like that. The IHR lay out a perfect system, and I don't think that perfect system exists anywhere at this point. From an epidemiological standpoint, what stage has China's outbreak reached? Is it possible to estimate when China's public health policies could safely be lifted? Their quarantine policies? Yeah, I would say mostly their quarantine policies, remote work, school closures. I know actually, at least in a limited way, they are already lifting some of them. But is there any concern amongst health experts that the lifting of the policies is premature and that people going back to work at this point could just cause a resurgence of cases? I mean, I think there is that concern. But again, how long can you keep the country closed? And if we're at a point where we're seeing very, very little incidents, is that a reason to keep people away from, you know, from work, from school? A quarter billion people migrate around China, uh, depend on itinerant forms of labor to support themselves and their families. And that's not something that you can continue to stop both because of their contribution to the economy, the economy's need for them, their need to support their families, their need to get back to where they live. Probably at this point, the, the best mechanism is now that they un understand a little bit more about this virus, you know, let people go back to work, let people go back to where they come from, and hopefully there are more local, regional modes of, of prevention that they can put in place, right? Once they have people back to where they come from and once they have people, you know, working again, 
I think they, I, I think people who, who are going back to work are taking preventative measures. Um, any business that wants to open at this point has to pass a test of five different types of evaluation, right? And one piece of evaluation is whether they're promoting good public health practice, right? So it's not just, oh, let people go back to work, let people go back to school. Um, it's let, let people go back to work because we need them to go back to work. The country needs them to go back to work. But we'll also put in place preventative health measures to make sure that businesses that are reopening are doing that in a responsible public health way. Do you think that China's health policies, again, like mostly the quarantine and travel restrictions, changed the trajectory or the timeline for the virus to become a pandemic? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So now what we're talking about, you know, everyone's posting on their Facebook page this this graphic about flatten the curve, right? Uh, and that comes from a lesson that we learned from the 1918 Spanish flu. There's a, there's a graphic that's been shown um, that tells us what happened in Philadelphia, right? And Philadelphia did not put into place quarantine measures during the 1918 flu. And so the curve in Philadelphia is really, really, really steep. It's not as long, but it's a very, very steep curve and, res and results in a lot of deaths. But because other, other cities could see what was happening in Philadelphia, and right, this is obviously way pre, you know, media, um, but they could see what was happening in Philadelphia. There's a, that curve is, is, is laid over a curve in St. Louis, um, which is longer, but much, much flatter. Flatter, so it's lower, lower mortality rate. Yeah. Yeah, so the, so the length of the epidemic in St. Louis was longer, uh, but the mortality rate is much, much lower. And so, you know, that's, that was a lesson learned by, by the country, but by our country, by the world, that if you put in place quarantine measures, it may not help the original location of the outbreak, but it will definitely, you know, that knowing what's going on in one, in, in one area informs people in another area of what's going on. And, you know, if you can, if you can sort of restrict the, the spread of the epidemic from, from the original location, then other locations have time to prepare. Why that didn't happen in this country, I don't know. Uh, that's going to be one of the biggest questions. We should have been more prepared. We see second by second, minute by minute, what's going on in China. There's no problem these days with social media, and we just should have been more prepared. But that being said, you know, the outbreak is slowed down here. It definitely is because we, we know how to prevent it. And, you know, we, we do know that if someone's diagnosed, we should be tracing their contacts and quarantining those people. And sometimes even to a second level, to a second relationship, people are being quarantined. And so despite what's happening in this country, the outbreak is being, you know, it's, it's slowed down here. Our worry, and this is something else that we should have learned from Wuhan and Italy should have learned from Wuhan, is that our public health system will be overloaded. Our hospital system will be overloaded, right? And that's what's happened in Italy. And, and, and that's what we're afraid of in this country. I think the people who are probably driving things like university policies, right, that are bringing courses online and moving students off campus and what will very, very soon drive I, th I think drive closures of elementary schools is probably major hospitals that are afraid of their 
resources being overloaded. They, they, they can see what's coming down the pike. And I would not be surprised at all if it's the major hospitals that are, that are driving all of, you know, all of these policy implementations. I think a lot of people in the U.S. are looking to China a lot for statistics, for mm-hmm. China implemented this policy and this is what happened. Things like people learning that most uh, spreading of the disease is coming from close contact, close family members. So I think we're looking to China for a lot of information about how the outbreak is going to go down. Do you think people should also be looking at China moving forward as China starts to bounce back and recover and open up, um, send people back to work, um, lift travel restrictions? Do you think people should be, as a silver lining, looking at this as in two or three months will also be there? Or have the will the public health responses be different enough that we can't really be continuing to see China as an example? That's, that's a great question. And I would say yes, but I would qualify that. Because I don't think we've paid enough attention to what's happened to China already, to the actions that China already took. And if we were paying enough attention we probably would have quarantined people already. We have a hard time doing that. We have a really hard time doing that for a couple of reasons. One is because we're not ruled by an authoritarian government. And so it's hard to tell people what to do. But the other thing I think, one of the other reasons why we have a hard time doing that is because we're a very individualistic society. And I can't tell you the number of people I hear around me when they hear of a suggestion that they should be quarantined, they're all in favor of someone else being quarantined. But when you tell them that they may have to self-quarantine, or when you tell them that there's a policy, there's a new policy in the organization, we don't want people traveling for business, and we strongly discourage people from traveling for personal reasons, which is an imperfect policy to begin with, Right, you, you can you can contract disease just as easily if you you know if you're traveling for business purposes than for personal reasons. But you can't tell people to, or we think right in in our neoliberal society, we can't tell people to not travel for personal reasons. And so when you release these policies, you know people, oh yeah, that's that that's great. But what about that trip I was supposed to take? It's really hard for us to think in in terms of protecting society. It's hard for us to give up our individual rights. The other thing that I think hinders our response is the fact that we don't have much of a social safety net in our country. It was really interesting in comparing the SARS outbreak and the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014. China went to West Africa in 2014, brought 1,200 healthcare workers and tried to help them institute a quarantine policy, and it could not be done. People rioted because they wouldn't have food, right? When people were quarantined in their homes in Beijing in 2003, the government assured them that they would have food, right? And there are social safety nets. We don't have social safety nets here ensuring food. What happens if we're quarantined? I'm fine. I have the wherewithal to have gone out over the past couple of weeks and increased my stock of food at at home. There are a lot of people around me who don't have that ability. What will happen to them? What about childcare? What about people who live paycheck to paycheck? 
that creates another level of challenge for us in following what China did. So if we didn't follow what China did, can we necessarily look towards what they're doing and what they're going to do? I don't know if that we're on the right level of playing field at this point to do that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much yeah. for, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for um, talking with us and um, sharing your advice and your analysis of what's going on. Yeah, no, thank you for hosting the series. To learn more about the coronavirus and its impacts, visit us at ncuscr.org slash coronavirus or go to youtube.com slash ncuscr.